Welcome to Waddle's monthly update. Uh, I'm joined by Drew Meredith again to review the month of March. Welcome, Drew. Thank you. Good to be here. What a month. And now you say it every month at the moment, what a don't month. you? <laughs> you know, I can't uh, remember what happened this month. Well, there's did the, there was a credit crisis or maybe a, the, the risk of another credit crisis. We saw a, a bank collapse in the US and, you know, one in Europe, which uh, we haven't seen for a long time. Yeah, they called it a 1920s bank run, mm. like the Great Depression. Yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, let's talk about SVB, so Silicon, um, uh, Silicon Valley Bank. And uh, over the month of... March, it was declared bankrupt, and what happened there? And then bailed out pretty quickly straight after. I think I was heading up to a wedding in the country sure. and starting to get phone calls on Friday afternoon. Uh, from me? Yeah, from you and <laughs> multiple people at the time. Yep. Uh, but essentially, old-fashioned bank runs, so banks don't always have the amount of cash. They let, Obviously, they take money in and then lend some of that out and create credit that way. Sure. Uh, but essentially every one of their deposit holders, about $100 billion worth of deposit holders, wanted to withdraw their money at the same time. Yep. And they didn't have the cash or liquid assets to provide that at that point in time. So the, the, basically the government stepped in and said, you're insolvent and we'll take control of the bank. Yeah, let's take one step back. So through the you know, GFC, we learn a lot of things, right? So we learned that depositors get scared when market is volatile and there's risk around, there's a lot of white noise. So governments in... A right around the world guaranteed two hundred and fifty thousand yeah. dollars will be secured by the government in Australia. It's two hundred fifty thousand in the US. Two hundred fifty thousand, obviously in Australian dollars, that's three hundred thirty thousand. So that's sh- a bank run, a traditional old-fashioned bank run, shouldn't happen. No. So how did SVB? What happened there? I think both it and the other one that went uh, bankrupt was Signature Bank, and they were both. Uh, idiosyncratic, although very specific banks with specific focuses. (laughs) Like they were very, very targeted on a certain asset class or certain sector. So Silicon Valley Bank, for those who are unaware, Silicon Valley is where all venture capital and technology firms have come from or where they are at the moment. So things like Facebook when they were starting, but also a lot of the venture capital companies that are growing, that have been growing quickly, but lose a lot of money. Mm. Uber, for example, loses hundreds of million dollars a quarter. Um, Essentially, Silicon Valley Bank became the banker of choice for all those venture capital firms, sure. all the tech firms, and a whole heap of loss-making companies. So over the last 12 months or 18 months, they've seen the big, I think, $150 billion in deposits start to go down quite quickly, yep. which, which they were, in, in hindsight, they weren't actually investing more aggressively than any other bank sure. with those proceeds. They're actually lending out less money than yep. probably the Commonwealth Bank and other other banks, um, they just got caught by a turn in sentiment yep. and people wanting to get their money out the and, same time. And rumours sank the ship. On Twitter, yeah. That's right. So <laughs> uh, we're, we're even more connected than we were in, you know, 10, 12 years ago in the GFC, a lot more connected than we were three or f- you know, 30, 40 years ago when there's been some bank runs. So this time it went really quickly where there was a, a massive uh, demand to... To, to withdraw money from the bank yeah. and that's when the stability started to you know unwind quite quickly and the other one that went down was called signature bank yep. which was actually the bank of choice for crypto yep. investors or crypto okay. platforms Again. so it was kind of very specific to a certain sector that was having serious problems beforehand yeah you got to be careful about liquidity and what liquidity actually does yeah. everyone wants liquidity but there's also a negative about liquidity as well right so and we'll, we'll, we'll explain that further in other podcasts that we do but you know th- this concept that some assets are best held 
that are illiquid over a long period of time. And when you do provide liquidity, you provide choice. And then you know, people, if they've got choice, will panic at certain points. It's no different to our investors. Any other right? assets, yeah. so. Property and, and other assets at the moment. I think the most interesting thing was how quickly the central bank stepped in. Sure. So if you think during the GFC, it started in like there were hints in 2007, but it really didn't hit the worst until late 2008 to the sure. 2009 before the central bank actually stepped in properly. Yep. And we were still increasing interest rates in 2007 as it started. In this case, the you know the collapse happened on Friday and the central bank had come in on Monday to guarantee deposits of all the inve- all the all the people who had put money into the bank. Sure. Basically cut the risk of sy- systemic issues and bank runs across the whole country in about 72 hours. We've often argued that the, you know, the top five banks in Australia essentially have got sovereign credit worthiness because yeah. we know that the, the the governments, Western governments around the world won't let banks fail in the same format that they did. And we saw that in yeah. Europe as well where <coughs> Credit Suisse wasn't necessarily an issue in March. There's been rumours around it for a long time, probably yeah. three years about the solvency of Credit Suisse. And sure, that business has been sold to UBS, but it's really funded by the Swiss government. And forced as well. $100, $304 billion of loans yeah. to buy Credit Suisse. And you know that's that's a different story. That's not necessarily a run. That's probably a story of greed and you know using their balance sheet to guarantee investments where their balance sheet wasn't as strong as they thought it was. So yeah, again, it was a company that was struggling. Profit was going down. It was having all kinds of issues with throughout the business and this kind of turn in sentiment forced, effectively forced change. Yep. So the government support um, in the US, you could arguably say that that'll go around the world. So therefore, this credit crisis or the start of a credit crisis seems like it's been headed off at the, at, at the junction. Um, Incredibly quickly. And that's why markets have kind of settled rather than falling 20 sure. or 30% like they probably did during the GFC. Yep. And you have this... So what the central banks have done is given these banks access to credit or to cash really quickly to meet deposit holders yep. or deposit requests, which it in itself kind of stops the bank run. Sure, yeah, yeah. Hopefully. Um, sure. So, but the, then we have this question, which we'll probably go through as well. The central bank's giving $150 billion in liquidity as a loan to all these banks while increasing interest rates yeah. <laughs> into the broader economy, which is kind of counterintuitive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To me. <laughs> I think to most people. For sure. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, so let's talk about then other things that happened in the month of March. Probably not in the month of March, but well, in the month of March we saw uh, interest rates in the US go up. Yes. But more importantly in Australia, they were put on hold yesterday. Yesterday, yeah. Yep. So I think we increased in, we both increased in March, 20.25%. Yep. Uh, yeah, yep. um, in the US, which did it straight after the Silicon Valley bank collapse, sure. which everyone kind of found a bit strange. Uh, then overnight, as we've been kind of talking about, and as I think markets, when you see, we can discuss the yield curve, Yep. Um, the market was suggesting interest rates had peaked. Uh, and what you've seen is the, the RBA pausing to see what impact that actually had on the economy. So one of the biggest, for the people that are listening, from one of the biggest uh, inputs into our economic models is a thing called a yield curve and really all the yield curve is is tracking interest rates on a one two three four five six seven eight nine ten year basis and then understanding what shape that is and that that shape historically has been a great indicator of what uh, economies will do in the short term and the long term and you know we can we can have a master class about 
shape, but you know when Drew talks about yield curve and and seeing forward indications of what the economic environment might be, that that all comes from a lot of it comes from the yield curve. And the concept is that the longer you're locking money up into a government bond or a term deposit, you mm. should be paid more to do that. Yep. But what the yield curve was doing was paying you less for lending money or buying a term deposit for te- 10 years versus two years, yep. which suggests that interest rates would fall at some point in sure. that period. Yeah, and so at the moment, and I haven't yeah. looked at the yield curve, so I could be wrong, but you know, the yield curve is probably flat um, you know, in terms of what I can get for one year, what I can get for five years. So if that's the case, um, there's a fear from borrowers that interest rates are going to keep going up for you know for, for, for next year, a year after, and rates will go into the teens. Well, the yield curve's not saying that. The, yeah. the yield curve is basically saying that interest rate increases are pretty well done, yeah. and I think we're making some calls about we won't see too many more interest rate increases, and that comes from our understanding of yield curve. It's quite a simple concept. It's a really powerful tool you can use if you're an investor or if you're one of our clients. We're happy to share some uh, some charts and some thinking around yield curve. And it's the input into every asset class, every income producing asset and every property or whatever other thing you're buying. Because mm. uh, if you think about it, if you bought a commercial property last year that was yielding 4% or two years ago, that it gave you an income of 4%, Yep. you can now buy a term deposit giving you 4%, maybe over a shorter period of time. Sure. But naturally... But you lock it away for five? Exactly, at so, 4%. So yep. you get the same return, but there's... Literally zero risk in that term deposit. Sure. Maybe I can't say zero, but and there's significant risk in that property. If, if so it's sovereign yeah. risk. <laughs> if you were buying that property today, you'd expect a seven percent return. Yep. Which means the value of that property would be worth significantly less sure. than what you bought it for. Uh, and we're seeing that in different parts of the market at the moment. Yeah, and that's a frustration within our office. We talk about, you know, how assets are well, it's not a frustration, it's a debate in our office that constantly goes on about how assets are valued and how they should be valued. And, you know, a, 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 we're going to fast forward, but if you look at the performance of listed property trusts last month, I think they were down 17%, is that right? Uh, 7% for March 7%, and yeah. 17% over the last 12 months, and yeah. that's exactly that. That's correct. Yeah. So the something that's more listed, like ASX-listed property, is indicating that their the property prices have fallen. Yep. But if you talk to anyone that's in real estate, especially big commercial syndicates, they're saying, well, there's no relevant sales, my property hasn't fallen. And any any type of economic analysis says your property's worth less if its interest rates are worth uh, at 5% than interest rates at 1%. Regardless of how much you can increase rent, it's still got to be a, some sort of fall in valuation. Sure. Um, but that's you look at our our office here and you, you could have one, two buildings next to each other that are identical. If one of them's on the listed market, it's worth 15% less than if it was unlisted held by an industry super fund. Hmm. And it's kind of that unique yeah. or weird circumstance where... Absolutely. Um, and it's the power of interest rates. And we talk about, even though that we don't have a lot of accumulators as clients, we talk about what's the best advice accumulators can get. And, it, and, and, and advice around interest rates for your mortgage, which you typically for an accumulate... You, biggest asset is the house the biggest you know the, the majority of that house or property is is owned by debt but people don't take advice around how they structure that debt if that's fixed or if that's variable or you know so that's you know there's a real gap i think in the advice market advising on what to do with interest rates and how to protect you know cash flow so if you think about accumulator not our audience but cash flow management is really important interest rate policy is really important but 
when you when we see a lot of people getting advice, those two things aren't necessarily talked about. And it hasn't been important for five years. Yeah, well, because if, down, yeah, interest rates yeah, fell so to zero and it didn't really matter. So, yeah. But now it really matters. When you're refinancing a mortgage at 6% or above, then it can be incredibly painful. I think we're about to see that in the next six or nine months. Yeah. So anything from our portfolio you want to talk about, Drew, um, over the last, last month? This, you know, things went up, things went down. Obviously, it's probably a, a more negative month than, than some. Um, but the Australian market, you know, has probably regained most of what it lost through that month. Um, yeah, I think it's in total return, including dividends, is flat for the last twelve months. And it was, I was, we underperformed the rest of the world in uh, March, so yeah. down one percent compared to like the Nasdaq and some of the biggest global companies, which were up two to three percent. Yeah. Um, so I there was a tech uh, comeback. Tech quality. I think yep. everyone talks about quality. It's probably the most overused. We talk about it all the time. No one wants to go out and buy it's a nice poor quality yeah, business. Poor quality, yeah. Everyone that comes in to meet us says quality, quality, quality. Sure. Uh, but what we saw as you know true quality, fangs. So yep. uh, probably less so Facebook anymore. But the Microsofts, the Apples, the massive global tech giants of the world were up are up thirty eight percent so far this year. Sure. Just in three months. Yeah, I like the quality, right? So if you yeah. think about the tech industry, everyone was kind of was brushed with tech, and everyone got this incredible uh, increase in valuation. Yeah. But out of that, there'll be the the guys that thrive, and you know that they're the quality groups, right? And they're just so. doubling down, like Microsoft buying or investing into ChatGPT and almost transforming their business and becoming a real competitor to Alphabet overnight. But that's, yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, we've we've you know obviously been a fan of Microsoft for a long time, and what what surprises me uh, is the speed to market. So ChatGPT was launched probably the first week of December, I think. Uh, we know the success that ChatGPT has had, but within 35, 40 days of that, Microsoft had invested uh, strategically. Uh, I think they spent you know was it thirty million dollars to buy. A lion's share of Chat GPT, and now we're seeing billion, billion, billion. <laughs> not million. It's, it's just a, a B instead of an M. Um, billion. So a, a big capital investment, um, not for them, but then they've been able to integrate that into their business really, really quickly. So I think Microsoft's sidecar will be is released for purchase by all their consumers in April. So if you think about that, launched acquired, integrated, all within six months. It just shows you what tech could do. If you were 20 years ago trying to integrate two industrial businesses, it would take five years to integrate them. So and this is why we, a lot of people or a lot of headlines talk about the you know, lack of productivity growth or productivity improvement, but this changes the game for our businesses. Uh, the ability to not outsource but start and augment the work of pe- of employees that or parts of the team sure. that are doing you know the even the initial drafting of emails dra- anything to do with language and words yep. and it can just make people more efficient and help them sure. you know, focus their their roles in in the more valuable and rewarding parts of what they do yeah maybe we're really excited about chat but but you know it's going to affect most businesses that we invest into and it's going to affect our business there's there's historically been a lot of arbitrage um in terms of 
pushing employees offshore. So, yeah. you know, we've seen a lot of employees sitting in for all the companies that are in Australia, from India to the Philippines. Um, it's become a lot more accessible to small business, especially the Philippines. But really, that's just an arbitrage on kind of economic conditions and conditions will change over time. What's really exciting is this arbitrage to AI and technology. So can you get activities done um, by AI? And I think it will change productivity quite substantially. So I was talking to someone yesterday and said essentially you want ChatGPT open on your Chrome or on your browser sure. rather than Google. Yep. That's Remember this is kind of, I know it's called ChatGPT4, but this is this is the first, first version. One, yeah, right? yeah. So the second version, the third version, the fourth version um, will will just change everything. So And the other two portfolio comments would be Gold Bullion yep. and Asia. I think gold had a we've ever we've used gold as a hedge. Sure. Everyone thought initially inflation, but it was very much around hedging against periods of volatility and yep. uncertainty. So gold hit uh, I think an all time high of two thousand US dollars per ounce, but yep. that's three thousand dollars in Australian. That's right. Uh, so it's done an incredible role as a hedge, um, and something we're looking at whether we rebalance or not necessarily exit completely. But at the, moment. the hardest investment that we've sold to investors over the last 10 years. It's gold. You know? It doesn't, gold. Provide, it so doesn't provide an income. I mean, cl- clients, it's not a whinge fest on clients, <laughs> but clients would always call up and go, I don't understand gold. Why are we holding gold? Well, he- it doesn't perform. It doesn't provide an income stream. But, you know, hedges are there for a reason, and this is a perfect indication of what, what gold can do within a portfolio. Um, so, you know. And we're one of our big, we've talked about our golden rules. Um, one of the big things where we think when you're investing money for retirement is having a portfolio built for multiple outcomes. So gold is one outcome. Sure. Holding commodity shares or holding bank shares is another outcome. So it's always having different parts of the portfolio work differently in different periods of time and in different circumstances. You mentioned golden rules. What are they? Uh, I was going to go through the 10 of those at the end. There's quite a few. Let's (laughs) save that for the end. We could sneak them through. And the other one was Asia. So we've had a tactical waiting to Asia. Uh, just the idea that if you look forward 10 years from now, uh, we it's pretty obvious that the majority of global economic growth is going to come from the Asian region, whether that's China, Indonesia, population growth, India as well. India, yep. Yeah, the population growth's massive. The economies continue to evolve, maybe not as linearly as, as people expected two or three years ago. Uh, but we had a reopening, end of COVID lockdowns, uh, and you're starting to see not the same bubble of activity that happened in the developed world, but definitely a resumption of some level of growth, and that's spurred the commodity sector. As I think well. that people people get confused about China and Asia. So as soon as you say Asia, they think about China. Yeah. China is nearly a first world country versus yeah. an emerging country. Um, very important to have exposure to China, especially uh, same as exposure to the rest of the Asian countries. And they have you know they have tailwinds. You think about the population growth you think the age of the population you think about adaption of ideas they adapt ideas really really quickly um so fundamentally waddle partners has a view to outperform to grow portfolios there's two simple things you would do in any uh global portfolio and that would have a cap bias so we like mid to small caps as a bias we still hold our mega caps and our large caps but you know these growing companies and then regionally we like asia now probably a bit more volatile but that's okay if you're striving for growth over seven to ten years you've got to accept volatility in that but everything looks like there's a tailwind that sits into Asia and it's a complete counter to the rest of the world so where every other central bank or every other developed country is increasing interest rates Asia is in a position where they may be 
cutting interest rates and have limited inflation problems. Mm. So it's you're getting that counterbalance and real diversification. Yep. All right. So what are we doing in portfolios this quarter? Sending, yeah, working diligently on our quarterly reviews at the moment. Um, we're not, we haven't recommended any major changes to strategic asset allocation. Yep. Uh, essentially, markets and the different asset classes, whether that's shares or uh, bonds, yep. are moving quite a lot. And mm. bonds are probably more interesting than shares <laughs> lately. They're moving a lot more quickly. So again, it's all about rebalancing back to those strategic asset allocation weightings. Sure. Uh, and I think one of the topics we had in here is what does rebalancing mean and why is it important? Yep. And I'll pass that one to you. Yeah, I mean, rebalancing is a, a great way to structure portfolios and get value out of portfolios because it takes some of the emotions out. It's simply rebalancing as if we had 30% in Aussie shares and 30% in fixed income and shares ran for 12 months. What we want to do is sell high and buy low. So essentially what we would be doing is uh, selling a portion of our Australian equities off and we would rebalance that into fixed income. Yeah. And, you know, this comes through kind of efficient portfolio, um, uh, originally kind of designed by Markowitz many years ago, but balancing is so important but so hard to do. Because emotionally, what what it does is uh, allow you, a, to give you a framework to sell things that are em- emotionally really positive. So you're selling your winners, and essentially what you're doing is buying losers. So if we said to everyone, we did this last quarter, if we said, hey, Global tech or global funds um, have had a bad time in the last 12 months. They're down 25%. Uh, you should put more money in it. The reaction of most people emotionally is, no way, I'm not going to do that. But if you can provide a framework where you take from and say, well, no, strategically we said we would have 20% in global shares and it, it reduces to 16 and you can buy another 4% at a discount, then that provides this great framework for you to manage your portfolio and avoid you know, trends and, and emotional biases that you have in portfolios and say, well, this is our blueprint to manage money and always come back to the blueprint. It also helps when markets correct substantially or crash, yeah. and then if you can rebalance, then when you can sell, you know you've got a framework to be able to emotionally get past selling some losers, and you know, or selling some winners to buy losers. The ramifications of long-term returns is substantial. So and that's so important because the sentiment or the cycle in markets turns incredibly quickly. Mm. So if it was commodities that worked last year, or if it was Australian shares that worked last year. There's no guarantee that they work again this year. So not doing that rebalancing means you're saying that you expect a continuation of what happened. Sure. So it's almost counter just counterintuitive and uh, removing emotion from the from decision making, investment decision making. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And some of the pitfalls. So we we always say that you know the the the, the fund that is getting the most inflows, we avoid. Yeah. And you know if you look at history, that's probably. You know, been, it's been a pretty, pretty good indicator. Um, and what we're seeing, what I'm seeing anyway when I'm seeing new clients, is a lot of clients have been um, trapped by, not trapped, but they've 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 over allocated to ETFs and passive. It's been a big push, you know, through COVID about being passive in ETFs. And everyone thinks that's fantastic when you're getting plus 10 or 12% per annum. But when you're in ETFs and you're in a, you know, an Asian ETF and it's fallen... 48%, it's hard to be convicted, you know, conviction, 
So, you know, this balance of portfolios, as you mentioned before, is really, really important. So an active active super fund last year versus a passive super fund, there was probably 6-7% difference. So, you know, it's... It's really important to remember who's influencing your decisions and why, and there's a bigger market out there. And how they're working together, definitely. And that, I mean, we can feed that into our golden rules if we want to get through yeah. all 10. Yeah, Maybe start with five. Who we saw, but we've kind of covered this. Nick Griffin from Munro is talking about AI. We'll do, do a session with him. Yeah. Really impactful. There's a, a thought leader called Michael Colo that we caught up with uh, around ChatGPT and how it can become efficient, and we'll probably do some work with him as well. Um, and then, yeah, let's finish off on on your on. Is it ten, Drew? The, the top. It is 10, ten. I kept it to ten. Top ten golden rules. So I think it's and as people have met us and seen us evolve over time, mm. these these are, will always evolve and they're rules sure. that, that work uh, that are, I mean, have been built over a long period of time, but they're also relevant to the fact that we very much specialise in retirement and investing a finite pool of capital and the unique requirements that you need to apply uh, to make sure that lasts as long as possible and increase the probability that you've, that you outlast that your money outlasts you, not you outlasting your money. Sure. I mean, this podcast could go on for hours if we cover all 10, but let me read them out and then maybe we'll pick one or two. Yep, go for it. So uh, first number rule, which we just talked about, asset allocation is paramount. Uh, Number two is beta is free. Um, Three is smoothing the ride. Four, be agnostic to product. Number five, income plus growth equals total return. Number six, define the game you are playing. Number seven, things will go wrong, as they do. Number eight, uh, don't bet the house on your base case. That's a good one. Uh, number nine, alternative assets, just straight alternative assets. And number 10 is rebalancing and tactical allocations. So let me, um, let's pick a couple and go through. Do you have a preference, the ones you want to talk about? I mean, we've definitely covered rebalancing and asset allocation yep. in this kind of discussion already and probably beta in recent weeks too. Yeah, okay. What about define the game you were playing? I think this is the biggest one and this is where we talked about rebalancing, but the emotional impact of investing. Sure. Uh, the we found the most the only way you can get people to make sound kind of informed less and remove emotion from investment decisions is to keep reiterating what the purpose of their investing is. Sure. Um, it's so easy to get caught up in what stocks done well this year, lithium, energy last year, whatever it happens to be, or what funds done incredibly well, which funds have done bad, and buying and selling on that basis. To find the game you're playing is just ma- meaning. Every initial conversation we have with a client, every ongoing conversation is what do you want from your portfolio? For most people, it's a certain amount of income. So if it's a certain amount of income, that's what you should measure your decisions on and sure. your ongoing performance on. Don't yep. And this kind of gets rid of you know the, the old saying of the Joneses, Joneses keeping up with the Joneses. Yep. So who cares what your mate's saying at a barbecue if you're generating the income you need, whether it's 100 or $100,000 in retirement tax-free. Sure. If you're achieving that goal, the rest of it is irrelevant. Things go, will go wrong. Most people freeze when that happens. <laughs> so they freeze, maybe sack their advisor, blame their, blame their spouse, you know, have a cry. And this is on a stock and a market level. So yep. the market can fall 30%. We're investing into companies that change and they're exposed to the economy. So def- uh, things will go wrong is the idea that even the you can't just all pick winners. You can't. Yeah, you can have, we all, we judge ourselves on the losers. Sure. But even the most successful investors get it wrong forty percent of the time. So yep. the top hedge fund managers, the top stock pickers, will always get forty percent wrong. It's 
but what whether whether you can reduce those or reduce the impact, it's actually more about the fact that even if things go wrong, you can still generate strong eight to ten percent compounding returns over the long term. History's sure. shown it consistently. Mark, you know, companies go bankrupt within major benchmarks. Absolutely. Things will always go wrong, but as long as you're limiting how many go wrong, and it's not hundred yep. uh, percent, then you've still you'll still be able to be, get the benefits of compounding and generating that consistent income over a long period of time. Sure, it's very similar to um, what our old boss used to say in Murdoch. He he had a saying which was pat the dog. So uh, essentially, some investments that have gone negative, yep. you know, as you would, is pat the dog, keep him happy, keep it within your portfolio. So you don't want to always just you know sack your losers and get rid of them because they'll put in a portfolio for a reason. Probably gold is a good example where we mentioned gold was a really hard investment to keep in clients' portfolios because yep. at some point when markets did really well, it didn't perform because it's a hedge, right? So Definitely. Just, just understand what you're doing. Um, and one we've been talking about is really simple and I'm, I'm sure most people think we're crazy, but this income plus growth equals total return, that's, that's around focus, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of the time when we meet people, we probably had a questions this week as well, that it was very much all they all people initially look at is the headline income they can get from mm. if they're DOI from the, stock, from the share they're buying, from the fund they're buying, from the ETF they're buying. But we've shown history data that relying on high headline dividends or if you're buy, investing into companies that are paying out most of their profits as a dividend to, mm. they're not investing in themselves and yep. ultimately end up destroying capital sure. and it's time and time again you see it so what we are looking for is the ability to generate a consistent income today but one that's going to grow over time because you know the re-emergence of inflation has increased the importance of sure. not only growing your capital but actually making sure your income is increasing each year yep. uh, and not stagnating because you've got a finite amount of capital but you don't know how many years that's going to last right and, exactly. you know a retiree now i think the stat says if you're married and you're 65 one of you'll live to 94 yeah you know so you're talking about and probably by the time you get there if you live to 90 you're probably gonna live to 105 so um income plus growth the problem that you were talking about is if you have a bias to income within this strategic asset allocation that you're you're manipulating the concept of strategic asset allocation. So one of the things that people do need to note is if strategic asset allocation drives 90% of all returns and then you've got a biased income, you're essentially changing your strategic asset allocation. So you're reducing the chances of achieving what is achievable by investing prudently, which might be acceptable by some. The way I like to think about it is if you play with the most appropriate allocation to income and growth as a portfolio and you preference income over growth, you're probably going to have an effect in total return. Yeah, um, which is might be acceptable for some, right? Some people want a stronger income, but you can't expect the growth to be the same. You can't dial up income without having an effect on growth. Exactly. Uh, any other you, free choice with for Drew out of your ten? Uh, always we talk about a lot, which is be agnostic to product, mm. and this is the idea in the news or in the paper. Yeah, it always one. comes That's out really as good. you know value versus growth yep. or active versus passive. Active being or passive being index investing. Sure. We our view is that when we sit down as investment committee and we get in, we find an allocation or an asset class we want to be exposed to, it could be Australian shares. The first thing we think about is what's the lowest cost way to do it, but is that efficient and is that the exposure we want? So yep. all of our portfolios will always blend ETFs, 
and manage funds and potentially stocks, depending on the person. But they'll also blend active management, passive management, and value versus as as well as growth investing. I think yep. that's the whole key to having resilient portfolios that are able to you know continually generate returns regardless of the you know the economic or market environment behind them. That's right. So the starting spot is every product or investment that's available. Yeah. And then think about the value prop of each one and then keep coming down. Too many investors, too many advisors limit themselves about, well, what's on a platform or I only use ETFs or I like low cost over high cost, you know, and they essentially have biases. The best way to manage money is to go, well, what are the, the risk and return characteristics of the whole universe? What can I get access to? What makes sense? Yeah, exactly. Great. Thanks, Drew. So these will be on our website um, and built in. It's a it's a living document, so it'll be constantly um, changed. I have seen uh, some clients um, have their own rules, and you know, a, a lot of times those clients would bring their rules in. So you know, as you are transitioning through retirement, um, it's really important to know what you stand by yourself. You know, we have our own rules, but what does the client, especially when you're a couple, you know, important that they kind of um, agree on what they do and when they do it. Some things like this about we will always rebalance is really important, you know, from a maybe a, a wife that's not engaged as much. So rebalancing is important. Um, uh, so these kind of rule concept works really well in terms of managing money, not just for us but also our clients. Yeah, definitely. Any any words you want to finish on? Something we haven't covered, Drew, that you want to, want to mention? I think we'll probably put in the links to the video uh the podcast that we're on regularly yeah the australian investor podcast that did we, we talk about that last week yeah, that you're Not now sure. a celebrity <laughs> so Hopefully drew appeared not. in a australian ethical video and i had you and your son um yeah, almost had that? the dog the dog ran off though yeah yeah have, uh, you, have we put that on um our website yet or have we sent it out? i don't think we've shared it so we'll include it in the links to this as well so yep. uh, essentially we were interviewed to try and you know help educate the rest of the financial advice industry on how we're applying more responsible and sustainable investment approaches to our client portfolios Sure, um, and how we've evolved on that over the years. And yeah. as most people know, we're a big corporation, recently got recertified for that too. So sustainability and responsible investing is pretty central to the way we manage money. Absolutely. And remember, our foundations come from Austin Donnelly that established uh, this business 1971, started the Investing Times and was an advocate for investor rights and education. And very much Drew and I have been, we, we live and breathe that. And that's why you'll see not just these podcasts for our clients, but a whole heap of different things. Um, you are a co-host in, I think it's Australia's most popular podcast in financial services at the moment so uh with owen raskovich uh so you appear there every every other week um we are we do some stuff with self-wealth and help them educate their audience drew and i are now um in the middle of writing a book around retirement so it should be out by the end of the year <laughs> it started well um so you know all our knowledge about retirement all the financial ins and outs and all the non-financial stuff will be in a book that's released later in the year so that's a it's a you know, hopefully it helps people, even if they're not our clients, helps people through this kind of last third of their life or golden years of their life. And, you know, you've got golden rules as well. So it all fits fits well. So uh, just a, a final one, Jamie, I believe you received quite a nice gift from a client this week. 
Yeah, I think that's the thing that makes us different is essentially we um, provide financial planning advice, but we build long-term relationships with clients and they become, you know, really close to us and friends and, you know, one, a big shout-out to a client that I've had for the last uh, uh, 20 years. I've been at Brailsford. I met her when she first retired. Um, 20 years ago, she worked at the University of South Australia. Uh, she definitely sends us chocolates every yeah, year. Yeah, so, you know, this is a gift that she sends um, on Easter. So um, she's, she's a lovely client. We've done great things with her portfolio. So maybe I can share an oh, egg. Oh, it is a chocolate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. an egg with you from Vina. And uh, shout out to the clients that um, essentially give us a lot of love as well. It's not just a purely financial transaction. It's, we know a lot about their lives. They know a lot about ours. Um, as you said, you know, they're more interested in our children than in us <laughs> and in, in a lot of meetings we speak you know um uh 40 of the time about a family and then you know get on to their life so uh really appreciate that to us that's, uh, that's why we do this job why we're not sitting in a bank you know crunching numbers the clients mean a lot and vena has been you know a wonderful client over that period of time it's actually a interesting part in my um life because I'm 47 and I got some clients when I was in early 20s so I've seen their whole retirement um, some have passed but some are still with us so you kind of when we write this book about retirement we've, I've kind of lived it from the Case first studies. day they've started retirement and the emotional journey and a loss of a partner and into aged care homes and you know I think that's that's really special to spend um, and share the retirement with clients and I don't like being 47, but you know, it's uh, an interesting reflection on what clients going to retirement have seen over that period. And you know, again, um, thank you, Vina, for your, for your love over the period. So uh, we'll, we'll put some links into other activities that we're in. Um, and if people are interested, hopefully it's um, of benefit to them. Always open to questions. So this is a new format. We've only been doing, I think this is the third or fourth time. We've had some good feedback. If there's stocks you want us to cover more in depth, if there's investments, email Drew and I and we'll make sure next month we cover them um, in this podcast. So thanks, Drew. Been great. Good to see you.